Welcome to the Plexus Podcast. Today, Brad Johnson and JP Novin are joined by Dr. Greg Delomo, president of Ryder University. Welcome to the Plexus Network Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. I'm here with JP Novin, and today we have Dr. Greg Del Olmo of Ryder University. How are you doing today, Greg? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Oh, we're doing very well. We're so excited to have you today. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to it. So let's go ahead and start with your background. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your lifelong journey. What led you to the presidency at Ryder University? I always like to start with who were the mentors that shaped your journey? Wow. Well, you know, I, first of all, no one ever dreams of when you're growing up to be a university president. It's not like one of the things in your, in your career goals. Um, but when I got to college, actually, I was, I was more of an athlete growing up and, and being in high school and sports was really everything I sort of revolved around, particularly baseball. And uh, actually, I, I, my plan was to play baseball in, in college. So that's how I sort of directed my, my college search process. Uh, but then I had some really serious injuries uh, right in the beginning of my freshman year in college that sort of took the dream of being the shortstop for the New York Yankees right out of my uh, out of my playbook. So being in college, you know, I said, all right, well, now, now it's important to start devoting my time to my my academics and really focusing on that and, and actually using a lot of my athletic and competitive spirit to, towards my academics. And I, I really began to get excited about, about learning in college. And so as I really delved into my, into my studies and really began to develop relationships with faculty members who really sort of influenced me. Uh, and I, I always liked the college experience. I liked the college campus idea. I the feeling of it and being with young people, mixing with, with faculty and being involved in the intellectual side, but also the social side of campus. I got very involved in college life uh, as a leader, as well as uh, someone who took my studies very seriously. And so as I was thinking about what was gonna happen after college, uh, originally, I thought, uh, you know, I'd become a lawyer because I studied, my major was economics in, 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 in college, and there's not much you can do with economics coming right out of undergraduate. Uh, and so I planned to go to law school and really got very excited about labor economics and uh, those kinds of issues. I actually went to law school for a very short period of time. Uh, that didn't work out, and I ended up going to work in, in, the, uh, in the professional world in the area of labor relations and human resources in the retail industry in New York City. Uh, in that time period, I, I decided to go back to my master's degree in labor relations uh, at Rutgers University. Uh, my undergraduate was at Montclair State University in New Jersey, and then I went to Rutgers University for my master's. And while I was getting my master's, again, very much in, excited by the intellectual side of it, um, I eventually decided to go back full-time for my PhD because I really wanted to become a college professor. And so that's when I, I, I and it was really a career change. I you know, I was, at that time I was married, had my first child. We had a house in the suburbs, a mortgage. Uh, my wife was working, I was working, we had a child. Uh, and so we basically decided to change our lifestyle and pack up and move from New Jersey uh, and drop the, both of our, our career jobs and uh, take our, grand, our daughter to, uh, to Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, I then went enrolled in the University of Wisconsin PhD program in labor relations and did that, got my degree. And then I started my academic career which first began at, at Canisius College in Buffalo, New York. And then uh, I moved on to uh, St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia for a number of years where I started as a professor, became a dean of the business school and left there as a vice president 14 years later. And I then decided, you know, once you, once you get into, I love the academic life. I love being a college professor. I love the research and working with the students um, and teaching. And so 
once I, got, I started getting to the, some of the administrative side of the university, uh, first as a department chair, then as associate dean and dean, and then moving on to vice president, I thought I, that's when I really started thinking about maybe being involved in it as a, a university president is a possibility and being able to lead an entire institution uh, is something that got me very excited. And um, so when I started looking for presidencies back at, from my, my St. Joe's days, uh, I, was, I was fortunate enough to become president at Robert Marsh University in Pittsburgh, uh, where I was the president for 10 years. And then um, thinking that that's probably where I ended my career. And uh, so then um, I got a call to possibly be the next president at Ryder University in New Jersey, an opportunity to move back to New Jersey. Both my wife and I are from New Jersey and uh, grandparents here, siblings are here and so forth. So I've now been the president at Ryder University for the last seven years. And uh, it's very, very exciting. So it would never have happened though, if it wasn't for those college professors that I really began to develop a relationship with both, like I said, academically, but also personally, and talking to them about careers and you know what, what it was like to be a college professor and, and where I should go to grad school and all those things. Uh, those individuals really played an important role. And then once I got into, um, into my academic career, clearly there were more senior faculty and some university presidents who I worked for who also served in that role to help guide me in, in this process. And uh, you know, I've just been able to, throughout my career, uh, connect up with people who really I admired and who helped me move along in the process. So it's interesting. You had mentioned you had a mortgage, you had a wife, you had kids, and it sounds like you did a pretty, a pretty big pivot. Big pivot. Yeah. Uh, I, I should mention I also we also had a golden retriever. So, so uh, yeah, we sold the house and both quit our jobs and packed our daughter and a golden retriever up in the car and drove out to Madison, Wisconsin. It was you no. Know, and people always say, well, how, how can you make that decision? You know, because when you have that kind of responsibility and it was one of those deals where, and I, this is where I owe my wife, who's my, my life partner. I mean, we, we're high school sweethearts. Um, and so sitting around when, you know, we were both working at a, put our, ch our child to bed one night, Friday night, having a glass of wine and just kind of talking about our future as a family. And uh, my wife said to me, you know, what did you really want to do in life career wise? And I said, well, you know, I, I've always dreamed about being a college professor. I thought that'd be the, the neatest thing to do. But I know I have to go back for a PhD. That's not possible at that, this point in time. And I'll never forget the moment she looked at me and said, why not? I said, well, we have a mortgage. We have, we have jobs. We have a child. We have a dog. We, you know, we just can't throw that away and move out to another university. She says, why not? We, we, let's, if it's our dream to do it, because she says, I think that'd be a wonderful life for our family. So I said, well, let me, let me look into it and say, it's figuring that, you know, all right, maybe we had one too many glasses of wine that night. And, um, and I looked into it and one thing led to the next and it became a possibility. And we said, let's go for it. And um, it was the best decision we made as a, as a couple. Uh, Cause it, it could not have happened without the support of my wife. Cause obviously then she supported me as the family uh, while I was going for my PhD and she was working in banking in, in, in Madison, Wisconsin. And, um, it, it took off. And so uh, to this day, we are very, very, it would, if it was my wife, I would not be sitting here talking to you right now. Well, and so you had talked about your background and I think you had mentioned labor economics. Right. So when you look at the business side, the academic side, especially as a president, do you look at education as a business? Yes, I do. Although some of my colleagues get mad at me when I say that because of my faculty colleagues. Um, but what I, a lot I heard what someone say once before is, you know, a college or a university is not a business, but it needs to operate like a business. And, and 
the realization is, yes, we are a not-for-profit. Uh, we don't have state sh shareholders. We don't, you know, pay dividends, but we have to make sure that our revenues exceed our expenses. And you have to make sure you're beginning to build surpluses to help fund the growth of an institution, whether it be through endowments, gifts and pledges and, and, and other donations to the university, as well as through trying to keep your operation as efficient as possible. So you can generate maybe uh, some, some surplus each year that you can then reinvest back into uh, the growth of the university. You know, in universities like Ryder, for example, you know, you have, you have really two types of universities. You have ones that are heavily endowed that really rely on their endowments to help fund a lot of their operate, annual operating budgets. So the Ivies and the, the wealthy ones and the, the more selective institutions that have very, very large mega endowments. And then everybody else who really has endowments, but they're nowhere near enough to be able to offset uh, or provide significant help for the operating budget. So therefore, we are what we call tuition dependent. We, we live and die in many cases on uh, making sure we have enrollments and retain students and students are helping to fund uh, the growth of the university. So as you know, in, in environments like that, enrollments go up and down based on changes in society and in, in the environment. Um, and so we have to be able to weather those periods when, when there's declining enrollments uh, to make sure you have enough reserves to be able to continue providing the high quality education that you're doing as well as all the other services that you provide to your students. So it's, it's a really important to try to have a sustainable business model uh, because when you think about it, you know, if you were thinking about starting a new business, higher education is not what you're going to get into because from a, from a financial standpoint, uh, because the business model is one that really doesn't make a lot of sense. What I mean by that is that in most cases, you cannot charge your consumer in this case, the students and their families, the full price of what it costs to, to deliver the product, in this case, education and the overall living learning experience that students really pay for. And therefore, there's always going to be a gap between what you can charge students and what your actual cost of running a quality institution are. And you've got to be able to fill that gap, either with fundraising, maybe some other research dollars, other auxiliary dollars, and hopefully have a, a larger reserve to help cover those, those, those expenses. So it's, um, it, it needs to run like a business, uh, but yet we have a different mentality than maybe a, a for-profit business. Well, and, and I'll tell you, it's a, it's a very saturated market. You know, it's very competitive. You know, there's a lot of tuition dependent schools and there's a lot, there, there's a number of schools across the country. And, and um, how, how does a university like, like Ryder, how, how do you compete? Well, you're right. It is very competitive. It's getting more competitive. Um, and not to mention the pandemic has really made it very, very competitive uh, on a number of fronts. But how you compete, the way we do it at Ryder, um, you know, first of all, you try to make sure your price, even as a private institution at Ryder is, you try to make your, sure your price, or at least the net price that students actually pay, because uh, we do provide a lot of scholarship money to our students in addition to what they may get from the state and, and the federal government. Uh, so you want to make sure it's, 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 first of all, it's as affordable as possible. Um, knowing that you're gonna to try to meet as much of the student need as possible, but may recognize that you're probably not gonna meet all the need, particularly as a tuition dependent institution. So making sure prices, at least in the ballpark to help people be uh, able to think about attending. But beyond that, it really comes down to the value proposition. You know, we always ask our questions, why Ryder versus anywhere else? And we need to be able to explain that to prospective students and their families. And it really comes back to the overall experience that they have at our university. You know, making sure that the educational experience, you know, it has to go well beyond just providing a high quality academic experience. 
And that, in my mind, is, is, is the threshold issue. You have to have strong programs, great faculty. You must have all the you know, academic resources available so students have the opportunity to learn. And we provide that setting for them to learn. But what's new in today's world and what we try to really excel at a writer is taking that, that threshold issue and expanding on it to add to that value proposition, meaning that your overall experience here, we have an obligation to not only provide you the academic and intellectual development, but the holistic development of you as a person that's going to prepare you for life after writer, whether it be your first career job or if you're sorry to go on to graduate professional school, we have to do everything we can to prepare you for that time you leave writer in four years, hopefully. And so we've put together things like a student engagement program, whereas every student, every undergraduate student now that enrolls at Ryder University must actually perform in what we call engaged learning activities on top of their academics. And we've, our faculty have identified six broad categories of engaged learning and students must participate in some of those, at least two, if not more. Things like internships and co-ops, uh, real research with faculty, not just classroom research, but actual research. Uh, study abroad or other multicultural experiences that take them off the campus, uh, service learning or community service types of, of programs, uh, various leadership opportunities, and also performing arts areas if you're in the performing arts areas. So these are what we call high impact engaged learning that complements what goes on in the classroom with, uh, with your development. And so we tracked, and you have to do this now as a graduation requirement. And so when you graduate from Ryder University right now, you're actually technically graduating with two official university transcripts. You have your academic transcript, which has all your courses and your grade point average and all the things we're all accustomed to. But you also now get a second official transcript, which lists all those engaged learning activities that take place both on the campus, but these other high impact experiences. And there's a reflection attached to that as well. Students, when they do that internship, when they do that study abroad or that, that research project, they now are, are really describing what they've gained from that experience. And so we take the idea of a holistic learning experience very, very seriously. So you do graduate with this portfolio approach. And the bottom line is, unfortunately, you know, students who graduate from college today, when they're being hired in, in most organizations, really have to be able to add, add value from day one. And that's not really quite fair if you think about the world we lived in previously. You know, when I graduated from college, I wasn't prepared to add value to an organization from day one. Uh, I was relying maybe going into a training program in a corporation to help learn that business and so forth. Well, a lot of those programs are gone. And so students, if you're going to be expected to add value to an organization day one, we now have an obligation to help prepare you for that. And that's why we want to make sure we're coaching you from the moment we're recruiting you as a student to the moment you graduate, you have been coached all the way through in terms of working with our career development office, working with our advisors, working with our, we have a coaching office for students that help them identify those kinds of impact learning experiences that's gonna prepare them for what they think they may wanna do. And rec recognizing that almost every college student changes what they think they're gonna do from the moment they're freshmen to the time they graduate seniors. I mean, I changed my major three or four times in college. In college. So you have to prepare for that. So when they do get to that point in their junior and senior year, they're not left sort of saying, oh God, what do I do now to prepare myself for life after grad school? I mean, after, after Ryder University. So that, Engaged learning experience is something we think is very important to our value proposition that goes well beyond just the academics to really help you develop as a, a full person. Oh, I love that. That's such an amazing differentiator, the engaged learning. Um, how did you guys come up with that? What, what prompted that? 
Well, there, there are a few other schools, universities that have done it, you know, for a while. I, I adopted it when I was at my prior university, Robert Marsh University in Pittsburgh, uh, because I'd seen some other schools doing sort of versions of it. Uh, but the idea that that idea of active learning becomes really important. We always talked about, you know, experiential aspects of it, but you, you really need to take it to a more formal level because what happens is, you know, you have those type A personality students, those high achievers, those very outgoing kids, they're doing all this stuff. They've been doing this stuff forever and they get it. Mm -hmm. When I was thinking about developing it in my prior university, and I carried this forward when I came to, to Ryder, when I was thinking about developing this with my, my, my senior team, what I would do is I'd go into the student dining area, cafeteria, and I'd sit down with students and I'd look for different types of students. And I'd sit down with them and I'd, I'd say, guys, I have, a, I have this idea about this engaged learning program. Let me explain to you. I want, I want to get your reaction to it. And I normally, when you sit at a big table of students, I'd quickly identify those type A personality kids. And they're like, oh yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I'm doing that, I'm doing this now, this, this, this. And, I, and that was a group I didn't really want to focus on because I know that they're, they're doing it anyway. I looked for that other group of students that are not the type A personality kids, most of whom were, were like devastated at the university president sitting down having lunch with them. And they're thinking, oh my God, how do I get out of here with this guy? Yeah, he asked me a question. I don't, you know, I, I, I get it. <laughs> and, and they would look down, they wouldn't have eye contact. And I'd specifically say to them, I said, now, what do you think of this idea? And every single one of them would usually say, once they built up enough nerve, they'd say, well, we know we really should be doing this stuff. Our parents tell us we should be doing it. Our professor tells us we should be doing it. But we know if we're not forced to do it, we'll probably go back to our dorm room and play video games. Um, and, and, and if it's a requirement, then we'll have to do it. And that's what I want to hear. Because I really want to move those students who are you know, maybe not as confident yet, uh, who are not as secure in their, in their development yet, to say, all right, I, I need to really kind of have an opportunity to sort of grow as a person beyond just being academically um, on top of things. And um, that's the ones, when you start transforming those individuals on top of giving the other kids who are really are, are sort of out there already, uh, that really is very, very exciting. And so as I see it really kind of, as we talk about transforming lives all the time in colleges, but are you really transforming lives beyond just providing them the academics? And in this case, when you see that quiet, insecure freshman come in to the point where they're seniors and they've had two or three internships, they've done study abroad, They've done, and they've grown as an individual, and now they're becoming very active as leaders. Nothing's more powerful. And that's why we do what we do as faculty members, as administrators, to really help change those lives. And, and at Ryder, we've added a new component to it. We say, at the end, in those four years, if you don't have a job or in grad school, you know, within six months after graduating, we have what we call the Cranberry Investment which is our, our colors at the University of Cranberry in, in, in gray. So that's how we use Cranberry. But the Cranberry Investment Vision says, if you don't have a job or in graduate school at six months after graduation, you can come back, continue working with our career development office. We'll find you a paid internship if that's what you need to get you moving. And or if you need additional education, up to nine more credits, we'll give it to you for free to continue developing, whether it be academic credits or whether it be certificates or other kinds of training development, we will make sure that you are then getting that additional work to help you then get that full-time job or get into that grad school. And um, now, when we first said that, I remember a lot of people said, well, isn't that going to be expensive if you're getting non-free credits at the end? Really not, because about 92, 93% of our graduates already are getting jobs or in graduate school uh, upon graduation. So it's that additional, you know, 
seven, eight percent of students that we will want to work with and we feel we'll be able to accomplish that. Well, you know, and, and, and you know, you talked about internships and, and, you know, transformative education. And so when you look at the relationship that Ryder has with the community, businesses, and even if you throw in um, uh, alums, can you talk a little bit about the relationships that you've been able to form to really help current students thrive during school, but then also post-education? You know, it's, and that's a great question because it's all connected. It's, it's, like a, it's like a system because we've always had a very strong relationship with a lot of corporations in, in the area. We, we started as a business school 156 years ago. Uh, and, and so we've had a very strong business college and we have a very strong accounting program. So with the accounting firms and a lot of corporations, in, particularly in the New Jersey area, you, know, you have some major corporations, the Johnson & Johnson's in the world and the Bristol Myers Squibs and, and, and all the accounting firms and other, other organizations, uh, state governments right down the street from us as well in Trenton, New Jersey. So we've always had a very strong relationship and, and that, that idea of internships has always been sort of part of Ryder. Um, but what we've also added now is taking those, those corporate partnerships and blending into it with our alumni and taking our alumni, particularly some of our younger alums, uh, it's a great way for us to stay connected to younger alums by as they're growing in their corporations or their organizations, to have them be engaged back in the university, not just from a fundraising standpoint, because that's usually what a lot of schools do. Obviously you're hoping that donors come from your alumni, but also having them be involved in helping current students with internships, with career development, with career advice. And so the cycle begins to kind of continue on as our alumni get more successful, they're reaching out to, to current students. And that becomes, like I said, a, sort of a, a system that just continues to, to nurture itself. And what's really interesting about this, like I said, there are certain programs that we offer that are just naturals, accounting, obviously education, students doing student teaching. Uh, we have a strong performing arts program. So a lot of our students are doing performances outside the university. But we start getting into some of the more difficult areas of this with, the charts, with regards to liberal arts, the humanities. That's where we wanna make sure that if a student wants to study French, they wanna be a French major, we gotta, we gotta help them get a job or get, you know, to what, what do you do with a French major? And so finding those internships for those students, whether it be with the UN or other organizations, you know, using their French skills, you know, we, that's where it gets a little bit more challenging, but that's where we feel the, it's more exciting in some cases, because that's where it gets really creative. When you look at some of those humanities that have traditionally not had that strong corporate connection, and we're finding that that's becoming really a value. So at a time when people are saying there's a divide between liberal arts and the, the more professional degrees, we don't have the philosophy. We feel if you want to be a liberal arts major or a humanities major, that's great because within the rider experience, we'll help you figure out how you use that, that discipline for your further career interests going forward. And that's where it gets really exciting. So we're not looking at either or, but rather how do you blend the two together? And, and alumni and corporate contacts become critically important in that. And then it feeds off into other kinds of support for the university that is, is really very, very important. Well, and it, you know, it looks like your, your undergraduate population and graduate population take online courses as well. Looks like undergraduate takes about 33% in some form or fashion and your graduate over 60%. So where do you see the future of online education and maybe even the recruitment of adult learners going at Ryder? Well, clearly, you know, before the pandemic, you know, we had, we had already begun growing some of our online 
education, primarily on, on the adult side, whether it be adult learners or, or graduate programs. Um, but we also incorporate some in, in the undergrad, traditional undergraduate areas as well. Um, and, and most of our, our fully online programs are more in the adult side of the equation. Uh, we don't want students, undergraduate, traditional undergraduate students coming to campus and you know, sitting in the dorm room you know, all day long taking all the courses. Uh, that sort of defeats that whole active learning, engaged learning concept we're, we're talking about. But it, it is reality. I mean, and so when the pandemic hit, we were, we were probably further along than, than a lot of institutions to be able to convert overnight from on, from on ground to online because a lot of our faculty members have had experience with that. And now we're back to normal delivery of, of how our courses are split between on ground and, and online, uh, which predominantly still um, on ground. I think it's, it's gonna continue to evolve, um, but we always wanna make sure there's, there's a proper mix between those, those types of things, particularly, like I said, for the traditional undergraduate student, because again, goes back to that philosophy I was just talking about in terms of that active learning concept. We wanna make sure students are physically involved in things uh, that go beyond just being at home or in their dorm room. Uh, but it is gonna be a, a growth area and we're looking at it as ways to, be. and for adults particularly, I mean, we all know adults today, whether you're an adult undergraduate student or whether you're a, a graduate student, you know, our lives are so complex as you know, work and family and, and, and kids and so forth. It's really difficult for them to come to a college campus either at night or on weekends uh, to take their courses. So if we can offer them more flexibility and still provide the kind of quality education uh, within that, that format. And that's the key. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's good online and there's bad online and you don't wanna be involved in bad online. Good online when it's done properly with, you know, it can really be a powerful learning tool, uh, but you really got to make sure you're doing a lot of development with your faculty and, and really making sure that there's interaction with the students. And we feel we're, we really have a strong online uh, set of courses that we offer to our students. You know, you all have taken the student outcome to a whole new level as far as making sure uh, students have a path towards careers and, and meaningful lives, frankly, because frankly, if what you learn in school is not just academics, it's socialization skills, it's building your confidence up. But I do want to go back about, about 150 years. I want, I want to go back to the genesis of your university, uh, which, you know, the Trenton Business College established in 1865. And it was established by Henry Stratton, who operated the Bryan and Stratton chain. And for those of our listeners who don't know, that was a big deal in the 1800s. In fact, when I was reading this, I remember reading the John D. Rockefeller's biography, and he actually went to one of those private schools for accounting. And it just stuck out to me, and I, I looked it up, and I confirmed. So if you could share a little bit of that history with us, that would be great. Sure. Uh, you're absolutely right. We started up as, as, as a, a business school that focused primarily on accounting and some other business principles. And 1865 is an important year because, you know, that was really right at the, at the, at the end of the Civil War. Yeah. And it was really designed to help those coming out of the Civil War to begin to get education so they can begin to develop a professional opportunities for themselves. And what I'm also very proud of, you know, women and, and, and people of color and international were parts of our first class. So there was never any, you know, wasn't any sort of a, a discrimination in terms of, of, of who could get that kind of education. It was open to all. And, and we actually had all uh, participate in our first graduating classes uh, from that, that, that business school. And that's really exciting. And so 
as those skills begin to become more important, particularly as you're moving into a, the, really the industrial revolution in this country, and th those folks went on to be very successful, whether it be secretarial or up to you know lead accountants in, in, in organizations. Um, and it really begins to create a generation of professionals in the business world uh, that we feel very, very excited to be part of. And as time grew, and, and that takes you through, you know, as I tell the university community now, it started 1865, coming out of the Civil War. You know, we hit World War One, we hit the pandemic, you know, you hit you hit the Great Depression, you move into World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam War. I mean, there's been periods of, of dramatic societal changes in that time period, the civil rights movement. And as our institution just continued to evolve and grow throughout all that change in our, in our society, it's something we're very, very proud of. So in sense, when you think about the pandemic and we sit there and say, oh my gosh, what's the impact of the pandemic on the university now? I always say, well, let's look back in our history. We survived a lot in that time period. And, and we now have to, we owe it to the future generations to make sure that we survive again. So it continues on for at least another 150 years. And then we figure out how we evolved from that point. But it grew from this very small proprietary business school to becoming a nonprofit and then becoming moving out to our new campus. campus. We actually moved Actually, out to this campus in, in the late 50s. We bought the property, you know, about, about seven miles uh, into the suburbs off of outside of Trenton uh, in Lawrenceville, which is really between, you know, we're between, you know, us to, in Trenton and then Princeton's on the other side of us. So we now moved into this 283 acre uh, farm at that time. And uh, now we have a full full campus on our, uh, our, our property. and. Uh, we are, it's a beautiful setting and, uh, and a very traditional university setting. And, you know, th there's been a lot of talk about, you know, colleges and how they're a bit more vulnerable than the past. Uh, obviously, COVID um, and this coming year is, is, is going to be challenging for a lot of universities. But also, you look at the decline in birth rates. So we've had a good 15% decline in birth rates. Actually, students going to college. Uh, from high school in the last 10 years, it's just been amazing. It's been crazy high. And furthermore, you have the competitiveness, lack of international students. So, um, you know, you know a, a university like yours who has, who is just part of the fabric of New Jersey's history, right? And just American history, right? Mm -hmm. And now you're facing all of these uh, components that make that that are characteristics of a, a lot of universities out there. Um, how do you reconcile those? I mean, how do you all deal with the vulnerabilities, and and which one is most concerning to you? Well, you're absolutely right. You you described it very well. I mean, the demographics are are not in our favor. Um, they are declining, particularly when you look at our region of the country, the northeast part of the country. Uh, they are declining significantly in terms of a. Uh, uh, those birth rates, and uh, we've mapped that. You know, we know exactly what's happening. Uh, we, you know, some say we live and die based on demographics, uh, but we're we're aware of that. And the pandemic actually didn't cause the decline. It's actually accelerated the decline because what we found in the uh, in the pandemic is, and this is you know really over the last year and a half, two years, a lot of the the middle to lower income students who you know were beginning to increase their participation in colleges have pretty much. Dropped out of the marketplace in the last year, um, and we got to figure out, you know, how how will those students will those students get back into the higher education market, or are they going to continue on just going getting jobs out of high school? And you can't downplay in the last year and a half when 
everything was shut down, both our university, we couldn't have students visit us, our campus. We couldn't get into high schools because high schools were shut down, most cases, yeah. particularly in New Jersey. Uh, so we, uh, guidance counselors were working with students and we couldn't get into student, see students in the high school setting to recruit them. And, to, and you know, for, particularly for first generation kids, the college process is a complex process, particularly when you had financial aid on top of it. And so they really need a lot of support to help guide them through that maze of, of applying to colleges and figuring out how to, how to pay for their college education. So the problems are, are sort of right now are being magnified, given uh, what you described. And so we have to look at, you know, first of all, the, the question we always ask ourselves, is this, is this a temporary phenomenon or is this gonna be something that's gonna really continue on beyond just the, the, the demographics, but rather it's more of a systemic change given the pandemic situation. Uh, and that we don't really know the answer to that question yet, but we need to look at, is our university right-sized to given where we are enrollment-wise? Uh, you know, it's very different than the 70s and the 80s when you had those baby boomers having more kids and the numbers were growing. Now we're, the numbers are declining. So you've got to make sure that as, as universities, we have a lot of high fixed costs as an institution because we have, you know, our, our number one cost of, is labor, personnel, uh, particularly faculty. And so and with tenure and so forth, are your, are your numbers that you're offering uh, to your students in terms of faculty and courses and programs, are they sufficient to be able to uh, address the declining enrollments. And that's something we need to be constantly looking at and how you manage that. Because uh, there's, there's no short-term solutions. You've got to really manage it over time and try to make sure you're moving in the right direction. Um, and that's, 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 a, that's a challenge. And that's another reason why you're putting more pressure on ourselves to you know, raise those, those endowment dollars, to look at other auxiliary revenues beyond just tuitions, uh, fees, and so forth. Uh, how, do you, how do you continue growing the university uh, and, at a time when you're probably going to see some lower tuition revenue? And, and to that point, as an experienced, you know, university presidents, how do you define the characteristics of high-performing universities? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think universities, like any organization, uh, whether it be for-profit, not-for-profit, mom-and-pop shop, um, I think the most successful organizations are those who can adapt to the changing environments in which they operate. Uh, and hopefully not after the fact, but maybe sort of be a little bit ahead of the, of the change um, and, and, and not be afraid to uh, evolve as an institution. Um, now, you still make sure you're providing your core, which is quality education. Those developmental things I spoke about in terms of developing the whole student uh, and really adding to, to, to the livelihood, uh, both intellectually as well as professionally and, and uh, economically to our, to our graduates uh, in an environment that's safe and, and, and rewarding to our students. But you also have to be able to adjust to the changing environment. I would say, you know, as universities, sometimes we're victims of our own success, meaning that we're probably one of the most traditional institutions. And that's, that's sort of charming. You know, we, 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 we honor our past. But if you get so stuck in, in honoring your past where you have the blinders on and what needs to be for the future, then you really are probably doing a disservice to yourself. So honor your past, but always have an eye towards the future, whether it be new programs, whether it be other things, you know, that you, it helps you become able to deliver the quality that you are able to deliver to the students in that time period in which they're attending your institution. You know, universities are very different than they were back in, you know, 20, 30 years ago, not to mention, you know, a thousand years ago. Um, and so we, uh, the best universities continue to evolve 
Um, and when you look at the top universities in the world, even though they still have sort of a, a sense of strong tradition, they are, they are operating in many ways very, very differently than they did in the past. And that's where I think institutions get themselves in trouble when they don't have that ability to, to be a little ahead of the curve on change. And Greg, uh, the last 30 years, there's a lot of people who've been, you know, sounding the alarm and calling for an apocalyptic end for a lot of colleges. Well, guess what? They, they're still around. And because they're not corporations, as you mentioned, um, as, as our friend Warren Buffett likes to mention, money is oxygen, is not everything. You need it to survive, but, but you don't go for it. So it brings me to this question. I mean, you all are in the suburbs. Of how would your town, where would your town be without you as a university? Oh, I think, you know, we are an integral part of, the, of our community. Uh, now, in our, in our immediate area, we have three great universities. We have Princeton University on one end. We have Lawrence, we have Ryder University in the middle. And then to our other side, we have uh, the College of New Jersey, which is one mm -hmm. of the premier state uh, institutions along with Rutgers and it's a different type it's a smaller type of a state institution but so yeah so the richness that provides both economically given all the offshoots of what a university provides economically to the community but the intellectual the cultural value of, of that uh, the ready supply of future workers uh, coming out of these institutions and another reason why New Jersey in, even in our region you have some major corporations here because they have ready access to very, very talented uh, students who are coming through our institutions. So uh, you cannot overstate the value of, of being in a, in, a, in a community that has a strong college or university. Uh, athletically, like I said, cultural events, performances, uh, lectures. Uh, we have a lot of people in our community that take full advantage of being on our college campus and, and attending those events. And in return, they, they help support the university as well. So um, I know when I retire someday, you know, I want to make sure I retire near a, a, a university because I think there's just so much value to that. And it just has a, there's just a feel around being a college environment that, again, it goes back to my earlier answer to one of your first questions, why I got into this business, so to speak. I love a college, a campus environment. It just has a feel to it. And, and to be as near it and being on it, I think just adds a vibrancy that you can't find anywhere else in any other part of society. It's definitely a fountain of youth. It there's is. No, there's no doubt about it. I, I, I would say as well, I think anytime I'm lecturing and I'm teaching, I, I definitely, it, it brings a sense of vibrancy and nostalgia that I can't get anywhere else because I can't play football anymore, that's for sure. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. But I, I do want to mention to a lot of our students that Ryder University, Complexus ranking, you're ranked number one in New Jersey, School for Music. You're ranked number one on secondary education. You're ranked number one in elementary education. You're ranked number one in public relations. Top two schools in accounting, marketing. So a, a, a lot of notable programs. Tell us about your academic tradition and, and how are you able to sustain that in a very competitive market? Sure. Well, as I said, you know, most people, when they hear Ryder, particularly in the New Jersey market, uh, the first thing of, of business school and our county program in particular, because mm -hmm. it goes back to our heritage. And we've had a very strong programs in all business and a lot of success, very successful alumni uh, in those areas. But you're right. We've also had a relatively small, but very, very successful science programs, um, yeah. you know, official bio, you know, chemistry and so forth, physics. 
where a lot of our students years ago went on to medical school, but now a lot of the students are going on to top PhD programs in the country. And we're actually in the process of trying to add to grow our, our science programs. We're actually doing a major addition to our science center right now uh, that's gonna allow us to broaden some of the technology side of, of science uh, to go along with our more traditional science programs, things like uh, artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, software engineering, along with our cybersecurity. So that's gonna be a whole new addition to our science building. Um, the other area you mentioned, and we've always had a very strong uh, college of, of education. Um, and that actually is, you know, after you look at our history, business was first, education was right behind it. And so we have a very long history of, of, of very strong education. And which is unusual for a private university uh, in, a, in a state that has a number of, of very successful state institutions that provide uh, obviously lower cost uh, education for their, those education majors, but we do very, very well. Our students are some of the most sought after uh, teachers in, in, in New Jersey with a very strong counseling program at the graduate level in our, in our college of education uh, that goes along with the human services component. But the probably the newest area that's really interesting is the performing arts area. Um, now we've always had, we've had the Westminster Choir College, which we actually was an independent choir college for years that was suffering back in the early nineties. We took over and merged with, with Ryder University. And so we have a choir college component along with a performing arts program that is really known for its musical theater program, our theater program, our dance program, and our arts administration program. And those, that, that college of the arts now has become a very, very prominent program. And probably our musical theater program probably is the most selective program within the university. We, we recruit students from all over the country. It's highly competitive. Uh, we get a number of, a large number of applicants today with a very limited number of enrollments that we have that we can, we can house. And um, it, it's Broadway quality. It's, it's students doing very well in, in the theater and TV and movies and so forth. Uh, so yeah, if you would ask the, the founders back in 1865, if someday we'd be having kids, you know, on Broadway and uh, they, they, uh, we, don't, we don't envision that. Uh, the music, the, the theater program, the performing arts has taken off in a, in a very exciting way. And then in the middle of all that, you have a very strong liberal arts component along with those professional areas. And that's why we, we see ourselves as a, as a mid-sized comprehensive university that really provides a, a very exciting educational experience. One last question. So um, talking to students who are considering where to go for the undergraduate, where to invest the next four years, um, why should they consider writer? Well, as I always talk to students, prospective students and families, and as, as a, someone who put three kids through college who didn't go to the schools I worked at, um, it really comes down to fit. Uh, I think a lot of times students get enamored with name and, and some other things that might be extraneous. And those are all factors you want to consider, but it's really important that you have a feel for this is the institution that's going to help me as an individual, given my personality, given my background, given what I'm looking to do in life. And is this an institution that's going to help me grow as a person, both, like I said, intellectually, but also holistically. And it's going to lead to outcomes that I'm looking for. And um, so when I talked early on about that writer experience, that, that whole experience, we want to take every student and give them the opportunity to, to, to blossom. And, and I know a lot of times that's sort of a slogan that every school talks about it. But when you visit a school and when you're exploring a school, you really need to ask those questions. Are they really delivering on that? Those are sort of just kind of going through the motions. And what's the evidence of that? Um, and that's why I think that engaged learning concept, you know, the idea that, that Cranberry investment, those formalized programs that really help institutionalize that commitment 
to help students at all levels be successful. Uh, and if you feel comfortable, if you feel this is the fit for me, you'll excel there. Um, you'll grow into that institution. And so I think we try to deliver that to all of our students that are exploring this university. And, um, you know, and we always know that if we get a student to visit our campus, and by the way, anybody looking at colleges, if you don't visit a campus, shame on you, because yes. don't ever select a school without visiting the campus first. Uh, but we feel if a student visits our campus, we have a really good shot at having them say, this is the place I wanna be. Uh, not only because of the formal programs, but the sense of this is a place where people really care about me from faculty, administrations, fellow students, and so forth. President Delomo, it's been a treat. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks very much, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank right you so much. It was great having you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more information on Plexus, you can visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. That's P-L-E-X-U-S-S dot com forward slash solutions. Or you can email us at podcast at plexus.com.